0: Our first uh, scripture text uh, this morning is found in Exodus 25, verse 22. I, we're probably going to go a little bit out of order from what is printed in your bulletin. So it's Exodus 25:22. Uh, this chapter um, has to do with um, the Ark of the Covenant and instructions for how to make it and, and some of what, what its purpose will be. So listen here to God's word. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, or covenant, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Amen. For our New Testament reading, we're actually going to jump over to Acts, chapter 17, verses 23 through 30. Now, I recognize that as a church, we memorized this a few, um, well, a couple of falls ago. If anyone remembers it and wants to, you know, recite it, you're certainly welcome to come up, but I don't see anyone. So uh, this, just uh, by way of reminder, is Paul speaking at the Areopagus, right, uh, about, um, about God. Uh, so listen here to God's word. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you, have, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us." For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Amen. For our epistle reading, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. As you flip there, I I will just say parenthetically, this is actually one sentence in Greek, which means that either Greek and English are different or Paul needed an editor. I'll leave that to you. Um, But listen as we see a description of, of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and what exactly God is doing. Listen here to God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and also on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory." In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. And then, finally, the the text of primary focus for us this morning is uh, 1 Samuel 5, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Listen here to God's word. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. "'For his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God.' "'So they sent and gathered "'all the lords of the Philistines to them "'and said, what shall we do "'with the ark of the God of Israel?' "'And they said, let the ark of the God of Israel "'be brought around to Gath. "'And he brought, or, and they brought the ark of the God of Israel around.' After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion, and he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of, the God, of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Amen. Amen. Now let us all silently meditate on God's word. God the Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you this morning to worship you in the name of Christ. God, uh, you have revealed yourself, your character, and all that is required for for life and godliness here um, in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be people who would, by your spirit, diligently follow your word, that we would not seek to remake it or reform our understanding according to the pattern of the world, but may we by your spirit be transformed, understanding how you have revealed yourself. This is our purpose this morning, Lord, to to grow in our understanding. We pray that you would kindly condescend that it might be so. Amen. Idols. This morning we're going to talk about idols. And to be clear, just in case my Hoosier pronunciation is off, that's I-D-O-L-S, not I-D-L-E-S, right? We're not talking about cars idling, but idols, things that we might worship. Just for a point of reference, I might use the word icon or image. They mean the same thing. Uh, We're going to talk about idols and and idolatry. What is it? Is this something we need to wrestle with today? Well, I think as far as the what is idolatry, we can turn uh, quite helpfully to the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 95, and it defines idolatry in this way. It is to imagine or possess something in which to put one's trust in place of or alongside the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. Okay, so something that we we trust in that we either put in place of God or we put alongside God, that is idolatry. What does that look like on a practical level? I can see through the window that there are a number of cars. I'm guessing that most of us arrived here by motor vehicle. As you put your key into the ignition this morning and you turned the ignition, were you trusting primarily in the providential care of the Lord for your car to start and for you to come safely to church? Or were you trusting in the gods of internal combustion and Newton's laws? Full confession, knowing that this was my illustration, this morning when I got into the car, I was more worried about whether the garage door had gone up so that I didn't back into it than I was whether the Lord was going to see me safely here. So, I mean, this is something we all do, right? It's automatic. Things just work, and so we don't think about them. We don't understand how the Lord is caring for us, and if we're not very careful, we begin to trust in the created things, that is idolatry. Now, I'll also add that an idol is the object of that trust. So idolatry is the practice of putting trust in something other than the Lord. Uh, The idol is the object, and they can both be physical or they can be mental or emotional uh, things that we create. Um, I'll give you an example of both. As an angst-ridden teenager, uh, one of the songs that I listened to uh, with some regularity uh, began saying, I built an altar for you out of Polaroids and pens on the wall of my room and on it goes. I don't really remember any of the rest of it, but it was a good first line. Um, I do know uh, and do remember that as you think about it, it's an angst-ridden young man who, who has an unrequited love for a young lady. But what's he done? He's created in his mind this image of this perfect relationship that he might have with this young lady, and he just thinks, if I possess that, I'll be complete. Life will be satisfied. It becomes an idol. And then to that, he actually made, to the idea that is the idol, he made a physical idol out of Polaroids and pins where he could go and worship this ideal relationship he had. You know, If we were to look at our lives and, and to be honest with ourselves, we would likely see that there are idols kind of everywhere. In fact, um, John Calvin, one of the reformers, said that the human mind is, so to speak, a forge or a factory for idols. That's what we do. We make idols out of everything. But that's not the way that, that life was supposed to be. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them in his image, And you might say, well, wait a second, you just said image and idol and icon are all the same thing. So does that mean that we're supposed to worship men because they're made in the image of God? And the answer is, may it never be. What I am saying is that as God made man, male and female, in part, he he made them to reflect his glory. So that as all of creation looks at man, at at Adam and and Eve and, and their descendants, Creation sees some of the providential care, the rule, the administration of God. And in this, the Lord establishes a hierarchy. God, and then within creation, it's man, and then other created beings. Isn't it interesting then that when Adam and Eve sin, they invert that order, right? They don't listen to the Lord, they instead listen to a creature and and they dismiss what the Lord has said. Ever since that time, man has been making idols, uh, things to put our trust in, things to hope after. And I mean, it depends on how thinly you wanna slice the onion, but I see that we do so in kind of two ways throughout our history. One is we take some created thing, maybe it's a shrub or maybe it's a, a rock or maybe it's a piece of metal, I don't know, and we turn it into something that we call a god. Um, we'll see an example of that this morning. The second is uh, often for those who are seeking to follow the Lord and seeking to to read the scriptures or understand the scriptures, they take a misunderstanding of what the scriptures say or a, a false conception of what God is and they sort of confine who God is to their own definition. We'll see that this morning. In fact, as we look at 1 Samuel 5, we'll see that the Philistines are guilty of the first in worshiping Dagon and the way they treat the Ark of the Covenant. But you see that the Israelites are guilty of the second as they use the Ark of the Covenant in inappropriate ways. But we must not do that. As God's people, we need to examine our own hearts. We need to see what exactly are we putting our trust in instead of or alongside the Lord. And by the power of the Spirit, we need to be rooting out the idols within us. And in order to do that, we're going to need to look to Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And as we look to Christ, may we not look to the idols of the earth. So how do we understand the idols in 1 Samuel 5? Well, just a moment ago, we we saw uh, we read a, a verse about the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant um, was a box. I, I, maybe we should have read the whole thing so you, would, you know, and unless you haven't seen Indiana Jones recently, in, in the, the image of the Ark is not uh, fresh in your mind. It's a, it's a box that has gold all on the outside and it has two cherub or cherubim um, on the top. And this is the place that the Lord has determined that he is going to meet with his people. And they're going to communicate. The Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's relationship with his people. And into this box, you'd say, well, is there anything in it? Because I mean, if it isn't, it's not much of a box. So into the box is the, the Ten Commandments, right? The, the, the stones upon which God wrote, and they sit there. And you, you might think, well, why? Because the Ten Commandments were what the people were supposed to do. So, remember, this is God saying, I am your God and you are my people. And as we come together, these Ten Commandments, these are what you're supposed to be doing. So, this box is built as a permanent reminder of Israel's relationship with God. And it has these special holes on the side. And the idea is that you put holes through them. And so, you don't touch the Ark of the Covenant ever. You you carry it or you move it as, as it goes around um, by slipping poles through the holes and, and picking it up and walking with it. We also understand that the Ark of the Covenant is holy. It's holy because God has established it to be holy. He's consecrated it. We see in, in Israel's history times when they didn't understand that right Um, You you might remember Nadab and Abihu who um, offered some sort of strange fire on the altar of the Lord and the Lord consumed them. There's also a note um, later in David's life um, where he has the ark moved and they put it on a cart. Note, they didn't carry it. And as they put it on a cart, uh, the, the ox that's pulling the cart stumbles and the, the cart begins to tip and Uzzah, well-intentioned maybe, uh, puts his hand out, touches the ark so it doesn't fall, thinking that would be bad, but then he's killed. And David is angry, he's hurt, he, he, why did this happen? And the Lord says that he struck Uzzah down because of his irreverence, right? He didn't understand that this was a consecrated object for its intended purpose. I guess we could also, if we had time, look at Daniel chapter five, we could see what happens when a Babylonian king takes some of the holy things and uses them for a party. Spoiler alert, it does not end well for him. Um, But we see that the Ark of the Covenant is this specially consecrated object that does what? Symbolizes the way that God relates to his people. It's the place where God delivers mercy to his people. Now, given our text this morning in 1 Samuel 5, we have to ask, if it's so special, why do the Philistines have it? And the answer is actually in the previous chapter. You know, a couple of weeks ago, as I preached through David and Goliath, I said the Philistines were a constant thorn in the sides of the Israelite people. And this is one of those instances. Israel and Philistine were, were fighting, and Israel lost And so Israel was wondering what to do. And in 1 Samuel 4, 3, the elders of Israel said this, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So on the positive side, note that the Israelites see that their defeat comes from the Lord but also note, they didn't ask, why did we lose? They didn't say, well, maybe we shouldn't be fighting. They didn't say, maybe there's some sin around us that for that reason, you know, we are experiencing God's judgment. Instead, they said, let's get a bigger weapon. And they said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna take the Ark of the Covenant. And it, by, by the, the, the power of God in it, it's going to destroy the Philistines. Now, we can be somewhat sympathetic. I mean, the the Israelites would have understood that in the history of their people, the Ark of the Covenant went with them and, and they were victorious over other enemies and armies. But it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant that delivered them. It was God. The providential care of God gave victory over the enemy of his people. This Ark is merely a symbol of Israel's relationship with God. What the Israelites are doing is they're trying to bottle the power of God into the Ark of the Covenant and then to unleash it upon the Philistines. That is idolatry. Now, fortunately for us in this regard, the Ark of the Covenant, um, like I said, unlike Indiana Jones, is not in a warehouse somewhere. It's lost to us. We don't have it. Right, we can't carry it into battle. We can't uh, venerate it uh, inappropriately. But we also understand that um, this sort of misunderstanding of Scripture and misapplication of Scripture does uh, lead to idolatry. And as an example of that, I'll, I'll give a, a good and a, and a bad example. Here at Lighty's Church, we have a, a particular litmus test for faith for the Lord's Supper. That's to say that when we have the Lord's Supper, we, we stand up here uh, and, and as we institute the Lord's Supper, we say this is for those who are believers. And we say, if we, you want to know what you're supposed to believe, um, the Apostles' Creed is a good place to start. And it is, it's a wonderful summary of orthodox Trinitarian belief that has been used for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years but we could ask the question, why not say the Heidelberg Catechism? I mean, I quoted from that earlier. We use that all, you know, Pastor John has taught through confirmation class in the Heidelberg Catechism. Why don't we use that? Well, the answer quite simply is we recognize that through the ages there have been genuine, sincere believers who've either never heard of the Heidelberg Catechism or don't agree with part of the Heidelberg Catechism. And while that is our uh, particular understanding of the scriptures, we recognize that we don't have a monopoly on truth. And so we don't create uh, um, an improper barrier to the Lord's table, right? That's a good good example. If you want to know a, a kind of another way that that we see that kind of doctrine can inappropriately divide us, um, not necessarily us as a fellowship, but just the church as a whole, um, you need to look, say, no further than different translations of the Bible. Some folks um, understand that the King James Version is the best. Politely, I hope, I would disagree. I think it's a fine translation, but it's not my favorite. Um, But it's wonderful. Of those who think it's the best, there are some who think that we should... Only use the King James Bible. Well, insofar as it goes, that, that's all right, provided we know that that you know we can we can come alongside each other with different translations of the Bible and still get along, right? And, and that happens in churches all across the country, all across the world, every day. I also know that there are some within the King James only. Group who think that all other translations of the Bible are wicked, corrupt, and just abominable beyond comparison. What does that mean? Well, sadly, what they've done is they've, they've substituted, right, hope and faith in the saving and gracious work of Christ for what they believe is the right way to, to translate the Bible the King James Bible has become an idol to some. It's become an idol in the same way that Israel understood the Ark of the Covenant. We could go through the same sort of idea with worship tastes and preferences, and as well as a number of other things. Um, Idols are all around us. But what about the Philistines? After all, 1 Samuel 5 is all about them, so to speak. Well, for their part, the Philistines are already a pagan people, right? They've already made idols out of Dagon, right? And there's some discussion and debate about what he looked like uh, or what sort of god he was, but he was clearly the city god of at least Ashdod. And so when they defeat Israel, they bring the covenant uh, or the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple of Dagon and they place it next to Dagon, And we need to remember exactly what an idol is. It's that thing in which you put your trust, right? It's the the object of your worship, your hope. Now, in the days of the Philistines, uh, often an idol would reflect kind of, what the God was supposed to reflect. So for instance, if you had a, uh, a God of agriculture, he might be holding wheat sheaves, or you know, a God of livestock might be in the form of a bowl, or, or at least have you know, something about him or her uh, to indicate you know, what, what exactly he was the God of. And, and the people would go to this idol in order to interact with the God. So for the people of Ashdod, they would be coming to Dagon and they would be interacting with this idol in order to interact with the god Dagon who was somewhere around, I guess. Um, And and one way to to think of this actually would be um, to to think about uh, your computer or your cell phone. Um, Before we called them apps, we called them programs, right, that we would run. And in order to run a program, you would move your mouse over and you'd double-click on the icon, right? And that icon was just a little square of pixelated light and it could do nothing. In fact, for most programs, you could delete the icon and the program's still there. However, in order to get to the program, I would double-click on the icon and go through it. So even though this little picture doesn't do anything, it doesn't have any power or might, the Microsoft Word icon just sits there. By accessing it, I have access to Microsoft Word and can do all the things that the computer program allows me to do. The people of Ashdod would have viewed Dagon in exactly the same way. Oh, by the way, our word icon is just uh, the way we translate image or idol or, or icon from Greek into English. Um, but that's what they would have understood. So, so then you have um, the Philistines, they've defeated the Israelites and their understanding is that Dagon, their God, would have defeated the God of the Israelites. And based upon the way that Israel was behaving, they likely would have thought that the Ark of the Covenant was their idol. So they just said, oh, well, we'll take this back with us. We'll put it you know, right next to Dagon I'm guessing, I don't know, the text doesn't say, but I'm guessing it's probably under Dagon. The idea being that Dagon is victorious over it. Of course, we know that this is nonsense, right? The, the, the Israelites themselves acknowledge that the Lord brought about their defeat. We also recognize that the Ark of the Covenant is not an idol. Um, it, it is a, a picture of the relationship between God and his people, and we also recognize that uh, you know, Dagon as an idol is nothing. He's a heap of wood or stone or, or metal. You know, maybe there's demonic forces behind him, um, but, but we recognize that God does not fight against other gods because there are no other gods. And that means that the battle, as it were, has always been, will always be uh, the Lord's it can't be otherwise. So the Philistines have an incorrect understanding of the Ark of the Covenant. They bring it back in. They set it in front of Dagon and job done. Now we have another God that we have in our our place. Well, the next day, an Ashdodite, just means somebody who's from Ashdod, uh, walks into the temple and he looks over and there's Dagon on the floor. And you can almost hear him saying, Maybe the kids ran through, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe the you know the base is out of level. I don't know. I know at my house nothing is ever where I put it. Um, you know, we test the 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 limits of spill-proof everything. Uh, who knows? So he dutifully picks it up and puts it back on the ledge. The next day, however, is no better. Dagon has fallen again. This time, his head and his hands have been forcibly removed, right? They've been cut, severed. It wasn't like it smashed on the floor. It is to say that the Lord, in his providential care, in his almighty power, caused Dagon to fall and to be broke apart, bro- broken in pieces. Why? It was a symbolic uh, m- there's a symbolic action where you see that Dagon has lost all power, control, authority. He has none because he never had any in the first place. Well, the, the, the Ashtadites still don't quite get it. I mean, they clearly understand that something's wrong, but they don't understand that Dagon has a supernatural attraction to the floor. He can't stay up because of, the, because of the way that they understand the Lord. And so what happens? They break out into tumors, right? The, the, and don't think cancer here, just think growth. You know, boils, uh, uh, growths, um, uh, lumps and bumps everywhere. It probably would have been remarkably unpleasant to see. It probably would have been un- r- remarkably unpleasant to, unpleasant to experience. But we see that uh, also the Lord ravaged the land, And if we were to continue to read into chapter six, we would see that um, the way that the ravaging looked is that the Lord sent mice in to destroy all their food. Um, So great. So mice and bumps and no God with any head. So they call all the lords of the Philistines and they say, what do we do? And they begin to pass the Ark of the Covenant around. And again, in chapter six, if you, you read, they did this for seven months. So this was not... They were a little slow on the uptake. But as they, and at first as I heard it, I thought that perhaps they're, they're playing like divinity hot potato, you know, where you, you move the Ark of the Covenant around and when the music stops, it's tumors and mice. But that's not exactly what's going on, I don't think. I think instead what's happening is that each city thinks that it can handle it. My God is greater than the God of the Israelites. Certainly, you see the second city it goes to is Gath, right? Gath, also famous for Goliath. And Goliath certainly thought that he could take care of the God of the Israelites. Um, But but you see that wherever the Ark of the Covenant goes, uh, tumor, mice, and confusion follow. So that by the time it gets to Ekron, the Ekronites say, oh boy, you're just giving it here because you want us all to die, right? Eventually the lords of the Philistines call in wise men. They say, what should we do? They make an offering of gold. They put it on a cart and they send the Ark of the Covenant away. And the Lord leads it back to Israel, just as a reminder for the Philistines that they know that they've sinned against God. So even though they don't know God, God glorifies himself amongst them. Now, as we sit here, as we talk about that, we say, well, aren't the Philistines the bad guys? Isn't it okay that bad things happen to them? I mean, it's kind of funny. And we even, now even we use the term Philistine like cretin to be a byword for someone who's uncultured, uncouth, uh, uneducated. But we shouldn't celebrate in their sufferings. Um, you know, because I think we all need to recognize that we are prone as they are to idolatry. Um, we could say, you know, consider the idea of love. You know, we see first John four sixteen even tells us that God is love. It tells us some other things too, just to be clear, I'm taking that a little bit out of context. And but we say if if God is love, how, how can that lead to idolatry? It does when we don't think of things with a biblical definition. If we allow our world to define biblical terms like love, then pretty soon love means never having to say you're sorry. Love means that you have to accept me the way that I am. Love means, I I don't know, that ooey gooey feeling you you get uh, like when you watch a Hallmark movie and the the stars see each other from across the room, right? (laughs) That is not a biblical definition of love. Well, what happens if you let that define love for you? You come back to things like First John four sixteen, which, again, part of it says that God is love, and you say, well, if God is love, and love means that, that I don't have to say that I'm sorry, if love means that, that uh, you have to accept me just the way that I am, that means God has to, too. What is, the, what is the result? Well, God can no longer say that I'm doing something right or doing something wrong. He just has to love me the way that I am. We see this in our culture Every day. And as we push this further, what ends up happening is that people just wholesale dismiss verses, chapters, books, testaments of the scripture. Well, this doesn't work for me anymore. This doesn't work for me anymore. And it's driven because the definitions of the world creep into biblical understanding. What's the solution? The solution actually is Paul, uh, well, Paul's words in the Areopagus. Remember what he says? He says, the God who made the world and all the things in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Think about that. Paul is starting with the sovereign God who's over all. Why is that important? He's reestablishing creation order, that it is God, man in his image, and created things. It is not, I take in from the world and then I remake God in the image of the world. He even goes so far as to say, right, being then children of God, we ought not think of the, the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. We shouldn't do it. We shouldn't seek to, to represent God because we're gonna get it wrong. The scriptures are the way that God has revealed himself. So instead of trying to remake uh, images of God, whether in in written form, whether in artistic form, we should seek to know what the word of God says. It's not easy. It it requires that we study and study and, and, and reflect upon what God says about himself and what he says of us. And if we um, do that, if we're diligent, we'll likely be surprised at the way in which God cares for us. We saw a picture of this. There are other places in the scriptures that we could turn, but we looked at this in Ephesians 1. And there you saw the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they are all working for our good. You see the Father who has called his people who who has adopted them to sons in Christ Jesus. You see the son who has redeemed his people, who who has revealed the mystery of his will. You see the, the, the son in whom we have an inheritance. You see the spirit who has sealed us, set us apart. And then the spirit himself serves as a reminder that God who is faithful will give us all things that he has promised. As we do that, we need to marvel. As as we do that, meaning reading Ephesians one, reading the rest of the scriptures, we need to marvel at the way that God cares for us, his people, the way he's redeemed us, the way that that he has forgiven us of our transgressions, of our sins. We need to to be in awe because when we are in awe of the Lord for all that he continues to do with us on a, a daily basis, what do we do? We stop turning to idols. And I mean, we could do more. We could, we could I could have you all fill out little Quodley bit like questions and you could put maybe your favorite idol or some, maybe your neighbor's favorite idol because it's usually easier to see idols in other people's lives than it is in your own. And you could, you could put little idols and we could go one by one and we could spend hours saying, well, this won't work, well, this won't work. But the truth is no idol will work. Why? because these little idols we we establish in our lives, we're putting alongside of or in place of the Lord Jesus, only Jesus saves. Idols lead to death. So so we could do that and there would be some value in that, but instead of that, because we all want to get home this month, um, we, we instead need to look to the Lord Jesus. We need to look to the Lord Jesus who's the eternal image of God. We need to look to the Lord Jesus who has saved us, not because we are lovely, but because he loved us. And he loved us with a biblical definition of love, not a Hollywood definition of love. We need to see the way that Father, Son, and Spirit continue to work in us and through us. And as we do so, being redeemed by the blood of Christ. We need to cast away idols, idolatry, and the sin associated therein, amen.